Welcome to the New Masculine Podcast. This is a place where masculine identifying people come together in community to disrupt outdated models of masculinity and together construct new models for our way forward as men. As a special note, while this conversation is between men, this podcast values all beings and seeks to create positive impacts for all. I'm your host, Travis Stock. I am a master life coach, an equus coach, which means I often partner with horses when supporting clients, and I'm a teacher. In my coaching work, I am passionate about the balance of masculine and feminine energies in each of us, regardless of gender. I seek to help others nurture a relationship with both types of energy, which often leads to a greater sense of wholeness. And yet what I found in my work with men is that many of us have been taught messages about what it means to be a man by first teaching us to avoid anything that is associated with the feminine. That avoidance leads to few experiences of intimacy, emotions outside of anger, vulnerability, or even a sense of belonging. Striving to comply with these models of masculinity has many of us feeling isolated, ashamed, unworthy, afraid, angry, and depressed. That's why I started this podcast, to bring men together who are ready for something new, something more whole. Leadership and masculinity have a tendency in many parts of the world to be falsely equated. While demographics and leadership positions are changing, it is still very common to see men, mostly who are white, leading our organizations and governments. It is, therefore, important for us in the new masculine community to look critically at and sort through the models and ideals around leadership that we ascribe to. Good thing for us, my next guest has 20 years of experience as an industrial and organizational psychologist. Don Angelo Bivens is a certified executive coach, speaker, and leadership facilitator who describes his work as for those wanting to be exponential leaders in life and in business. He personally identifies as a son, as a human, as a gay man, and as black. A recent venture of his is focused on providing coaching services to enhance the leadership of other black and brown men. We're incredibly lucky to have his expertise and knowledge inform our continued conversations on the new masculine. So let's find out more about him and his perspectives around masculinity. Welcome, Dan Angelo. Yes, let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> thank you so much for joining me. It's a real pleasure to have you. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a month or two now, I think. Yeah, I know. We've had uh, some previous conversations to get us ourselves prepared for this. And before we even hit the record button, we were having lots of fun just giggling <laughs> over here, making making fools of ourselves with each other. Uh, yes. So I'm super excited. Well, is there anything that I didn't mention in the intro that you think is important for people to know about you as we get into this conversation? I am soon to be an author. Yeah, really looking forward to that. Uh, It will not be released until the first uh, quarter of 2022. And I am super, super excited about it. Tell me more about it. What's the book about? The book is about... Actually, let me act, let me phrase it this way uh, for you and the audience in that. Have you ever considered how your assumptions and expectations get in the way of your leadership and relationships? Ooh, that's a big question. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, as a coach, I, I'm having people check their assumptions all the time. It's something that I find clients find really profound. Um, to even start to go, wait, that could I, I make assumptions or I have <laughs> expectations? Wait, what? That's not just fact and reality. Mm, Tell me about your perspective so. on this. It is my intention to assist humans in understanding that their expectations um, and assumptions are not always accurate, and they're also one-sided. Even in those moments when you will say to your partner, take out the trash, or can you take out the trash today? And he says, yes. Even that is an expectation. It's not an agreement. Yes is not an agreement. An agreement requires dialogue. And more often than not, us human beings are not having dialogue about our assumptions and expectations. And when people don't meet them, we cause a shit ton of trouble in our relationships and thereby 
negatively impacting our effectiveness as leaders, whether or not that is leading in your family, leading at church, leading in a social organization, or leading at work, right? Leadership shows up everywhere. And so uh, that's what the book is about. I think you're onto something really important because I do think the biggest breakdowns in our relationships, whether they be at work, at home, with our kids, with our community, it does happen in our assumptions and our expectations that are unchecked, that are un, unquestioned, yeah. that are even, have, aren't even brought into the actual relationship. They're just kept internally in our mind. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And we hold our assumptions as true. And they're typically far from it. Because we don't check them out. We don't go and say, well, you know, you did this other thing uh, the day. I make the assumption that you were being so-and-so and that you intended to do so. We don't do that. We, unfortunately, we do not have conversations that matter regularly. And it becomes a problem. What do you think are the benefits of checking our assumptions in those ways? Actually going to someone saying, here's the assumption I'm making based on what just played out between us. Well, it allows for you to live outside of your head. Which we do a lot of living inside our heads, don't we? <laughs> More than 90% of the time. Yeah. Right. And, and more, even more specifically, when we have assumptions that are negative about people, and we hold on to them, we then begin to relate to those people differently. It leads to having ineffective relationships. And that's not what we're here to do. Specifically as leaders, we're here to create optimal outcomes. And you're not creating that if you're not having those conversations. So would you say that your work is really focused on improving relationships? My my work, and it also it happens to be my tagline for my company, is that my life's work is about creating better humans, which equates to creating better leaders, right? Better humans, better leaders. And that impacts all varieties of conversations and lifestyles and and everything in between. Well, let's hear about how you got to this place. Let's hear a little bit. Let's rewind the tapes and go back to young Don Angelo, little, <laughs> little, little baby Don Angelo. And let's find out like, what are some of the stories that come to mind that when you think about your childhood and when you think about growing up as a boy in this world, growing up as a black boy in this world, growing up as a gay boy in this world, just tell me what comes to mind. My childhood was, um, a bit hard. And what I mean by that is being black and gay is two strikes in the black community. Gay men and gay women in the black community, um, given that a great majority of the black and the black community is also Christian and or Catholic. And being gay is a no-no, right? It is looked down upon, unfortunately. And I was chastised a lot by family, by people who didn't know me, by those who considered themselves to be friends, a lot of, lot of hurtful moments and moments when I would have thought my life would be better served not being on this place we call Earth. I remember a couple stories come to mind. I was living in Milwaukee on the northwest side of Milwaukee and wanting to make money, I picked up a paper route. I think my little sister at that time was maybe about seven or eight. I was walking the paper route. Um, she was putting the paper on somebody's doorstep. I was carrying her pink book bag. 
And the next thing I know, um, there were probably about a good 10 black boys who began chastising me, calling me out of my name, approaching me and so forth. And I got jumped. One of them happened to be um, a young man who lived directly next door to me. Uh, while he did not participate, he sure in the hell didn't try to stop it. Right. All for the, the possibility of me being gay. Right. I was not, I did not consider myself to be gay then. Didn't consider myself to be out. And so I did what I would usually do. I called family and let them know what happened. And within 30 minutes, I had probably about a good 30 to 40 people on my doorstep ready to create, um, havoc in the community in which I lived, right? Because no one plays the jumping game. You want to fight? Sure, fight one-on-one, but you're not going to jump anybody in my family, right? And so there are many incidents like that in my life where I have been ridiculed, where I have been chastised, picked on, jumped for the possibility of being gay. There was no certainty. (laughs) Just a pink book bag. (laughs) Yeah, so I hid it for a very long time. For a very long time, actually until I was 31. Mm. People assumed, but there was never any proof, right? I would take women out on dates just to say that I was dating someone. And... I was in a course years ago, 2007. It was April of 2007 to be exact. And the facilitator said something. I couldn't remember who, what she said. I remember how I felt in, at the moment. And it was in that moment where this light bulb went off in my head. And the exact words were, You are cheating the people in your life from knowing you as you are and as you are not. I was like, fuck. (laughs) I have to come out. (sighs) I have not cried about that moment in a very long time. And so I was living in New York City, and I went home to tell my brother, who's my roommate, that I was gay. And he had company, so I didn't tell him. And he ended up doing the course that I had completed the following week. And he came home. After completing the course, he said, we need to talk. And I said, I already know what you want to talk about. And we had this crying moment for about a good two hours. And he was not upset about the fact that I was gay. He was upset about the fact that I did not trust him in telling him that. And I find that that is what most people have been or had been upset about with me was the fact that I did not share who I was. Um, And I had to tell them consistently, or I had to tell them consistently then, it wasn't about you. It was about me. And so I came out, and my mother actually had known for quite some time. She had known about three or four years before that, because at that moment I told her I was bisexual because mm. I didn't want to go to f- full gayness. That was just too much. Just <laughs> too all, much. Some of us need a stepping <laughs> stone. <laughs> 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 the indirect path, but it's still on the way. <laughs> you know? And, uh, and she, she would ask me all the time, so who you're dating? And she was like, who is she? (laughs) Never the possibility of being a man, right? 
Who was she? And then when I finally came out, yes, I am gay. She would still say, well, who are you dating? And who is she? And one day I had to tell her, I said, listen, mother, I love you. And one day there will be a he. Oh, I ain't ready for that yet. I ain't ready. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, well, you better get ready. (laughs) (laughs) And the one person who I thought it would be hard for was my father, right? A very religious man, uh, chairman of the deacon board at his church. And I told him, he said, son, I've always known. I've just been waiting on you to tell me. Mm. Right. And it was easy. I didn't talk to my brother for two years. We're great now. And so, you know, I live my life now. Live your life. Love it. Live my life. (laughs) Well, I'm so grateful that you shared this story and shared the vulnerably with us and the emotions. And I know that, as you were saying, like you haven't cried about this in in a long time. it's beautiful to witness that emotion with you. And as a fellow gay person in the world, I know how nonlinear our journeys can be and how Mm. there's so many steps and so many moments that push us out of the closet, push us back into the closet, push like it's not ever a, a straight line for most of us. And so to be able to hear your story is it's super nourishing to me and it's beautiful to witness your emotion around it because I I don't think you can get around the fact that that is a important moment for most of us in our lives. It's a it's a turning point for sure. Very much so. I remember I was by my best female friend's house in Milwaukee. I was living in New York City at the time, and my sister called me, and she said, "I have a question for you." I was like, okay, ask it. She said, are you gay? Right? Because I hadn't told her just yet. I said, yes. She said, why? I said, are you straight? She said, yes. I said, why? (laughs) (laughs) You know, like, it's a fucking stupid question. And people ask it all the time. So listeners, I'm telling you, it is a fucking stupid question. Don't (laughs) ask people that stupid shit. It's like, do you justify why you're straight? And I told her, right, um, nobody chooses a hard lifestyle. Well, actually, some do. Let me take that back. Hmm. But if I had to choose this from the beginning, would I choose it? No, I just I wouldn't. And I choose to be who I am. Mm. Right? So whatever your shit is, is about this, you need to fucking get over yourself. Mm. If I have to deal with this with my mother or my father, that's one thing. But you, you ain't gave birth to me. Your family, yes. You're important, yes. But I don't give a fuck about what you think. I've been doing that far too long. Right. Yeah, because our choice doesn't exist in how we were made, how we came into this world. That's our right. choice comes from how we live in it. That's right. And I love That's that right. you said that it, you didn't choose that and you may not have chosen that from the get beginning if you had the choice, but you're no longer wasting your energy trying to change something that was never yours to decide anyways. Yeah. And you're now choosing to live in your truth and in your life. That's right. What do you think it was about the messaging that you got or what do you think it, why do you think you needed to go until you were about 31 years old before you could sort of stop doing the dating women to pretend and the trying to live up to something that wasn't who you are? I did not believe that I would be accepted and or loved if people knew that I was gay. And I wasn't accepting of it myself, right? 
And so to this day, I can count on one for one hand how many gay friends I have. Right? My life has been very much in the straight world. And I've done that up until now intentionally because I did not want to be around um, specifically people who were flaming, right? That word that we use that is so derogatory to me now, it wasn't then, but men who have been or, or men who now def define themselves as women, I did not want any part of that because I thought it looked bad upon me, right? I don't give a fuck now, but it is how I lived my life. And so I didn't want to lose people. I mean, there was a time in high school where two young men who I considered to be friends, very close friends, we hung out all the time. We, we didn't do things without each other, right? My mother brought a cake for my birthday. We're eating it, uh, or I'm about to cut it in the lunchroom. And they say to me, we, we need to talk to you. They pull me to the side and say, we can no longer hang out with you. Like, huh. Why? Because when you hang out with us, all of our other male friends think you're gay. And we can't have people thinking we're gay. I mean, it was, I mean, it was proof that if I were to be gay and tell everybody that I would lose those people who I, I believe to be closest to me. So I continue to live my life that way. Yeah, which makes complete sense when the stakes are that high, when you're lo being loved, belonging, your community mm. is at stake. It makes sense that we we learn to cope in ways that are about trying to appear a certain way, even though that comes at the sacrifice of who we actually are. Yeah. And it's amazing that those experiences over time lead to what you were sort of describing as that own internalized homophobia, that rejection of flame, quote unquote, flaming men or effeminate mm -hmm. men. I, I know that story well too, of being afraid to be associated in near effeminate yes. men because of what that meant about me. And I think it's so important that we're having these conversations about the detrimental impact of what sort of the heteronormative version of masculinity that's out there is because it, it leaves so many of us at risking our belonging, our, yes. our worthiness, our value and it causes us to internalize those message, messages and keep perpetuating that harm on others. Yes, very much so. I was not taught to love myself mm. as I am and as I'm not, which led to me living a lie for 31 years, or at least 27, right? I mean, I was always attracted to men. I remember... I must have been maybe about six or seven. And my sister, who was in high school then, I think, she was being picked up by a young man for a date. And I remember it like it was yesterday. I said, oh, he's cute. And my mother said, boys do not call other boys cute. You do not do that, right? My sexuality has nothing to do with my masculinity. I have worked, listen, when people would chastise me and so forth, I'm like, okay, so what do I need to do to set the course straight? So literally, I would begin recording myself in terms of how I would speak, my mannerisms, my walk, so that I can understand what was happening. And I could shift it. Like, I can change this. And so I began to work on that. And now some people know, and then others others will, will question, 
And then some people will be like, no, no, he's straight. Right. I've intentionally changed my outside world or how I appear in the outside world so that I could be more acceptable of myself and, and to others. Right. And now it's just a natural part of who I am. I don't think about it. Well, I take that back. I mean, I even worry about it today. Right. So if you're recording this and you're going to be sharing it with people, I am a little concerned about how I will be perceived. You know, I just started doing videos for LinkedIn to talk about leadership and, uh, and my, um, my Facebook group called Better Humans, Better Leaders. And I'm concerned about the pitch in my voice, the rolling of my eyes, my gestures. I'm like, I am concerned about how I will be perceived. And it's fucking tired. My God, it is so tired. Thank you for landing in that place because that's exactly what I was thinking because I remember seeing so many times as a teenager into into like college time frame seeing myself on camera hearing my own voice and being mortified hating it self-judgment self-hatred because it, i couldn't hide from myself when i saw those things and so i spent a lot of time trying to butch it up trying to shift the way i walk the way i talk the way my hands move and it is exhausting it's not just a uh let me learn this skill set so that I can do this job really well. It's an exhausting chore to constantly be self-modulating, self-evaluating, and typically looking from a hypercritical lens, not from a generous lens towards self. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I heard you say that you weren't taught to love yourself for all the things that you are and are not. What has your journey been like towards self-love? How have you started practicing more of that? Well, I mean, it's a process, right? I can't say that I am at 100%. I mean, I'm 45 years old, and so I spent at least 26 of those years not knowing who I was and not accepting who I was from fear of how I would be treated and losing people. And so, you know, for lack of better wording, you know, my friend Court would say, or he used to say, you're an adolescent in gay years, right? And it's, it's so true and that I'm still learning how to love myself. And how to love my fellow, you know, men and women who are of the LGBTQ community, right? I'm still learning. I'm not done yet. And, and what's important about me loving myself to the fullness of who I am and who I'm, I'm not is that I have too much shit to give to the world. I have too many leaders to help them change who they are, not even change who they are, change how they think, which then changes who they are, right? I have too much work to do to be worried about this shit. And so I'm like, you know what? People going to think whatever in the hell they're going to think. So let me just get my ass on video. <laughs> <laughs> right? You know, I put one out today, um, and I'm like, oh shit, I gotta do this. I gotta do it. I gotta do it. Just do it now, Angelo. Get it over with. It's nerve wracking. World, I'm gay and I'm here. I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love, I love that because I think you're absolutely right that there's just two, for for most of our childhood, what was at stake was our love, being loved, belonging, our community, our families. And at a certain point, we get through that piece of things. And now I love that what you're seeing is that there's too much at stake in terms of 
your offering to the world is diluted. It's you're missing so many opportunities when you're constantly self-evaluating and constantly in that anxiety about self and how you show up. And you're right. You do have too much to offer and it's too high, too high a price to pay to constantly be living out of self-love. I mean, I'm 45 and I've never been in a relationship with a man. I've never been in a relationship. And that doesn't work, right? Partnership is an important piece of the human experience. And I've not had it up until now. And it has everything to do with how I've seen myself and how I've seen the LGBTQ community. Like I'm, I call myself an inactive member or I used to call myself an inactive member of the gay community. And now it's like, yeah, I don't, I don't have time for that. You know, I, I want children and, and even recently entertained, you know, having a child on my own. What I do I want? Is that the optimal experience? For me, no. I want to do it with a partner, right? A husband. And so, you know, Don Angelo, you want these things? Well, you got to change how you think so that your words and your behaviors are aligned with what it is that you believe that you want. Uh-oh, you got to start living what you're giving to the world, huh? That's right. Uh-huh. And so I am, right? And it it takes work. It sure do. <laughs> Shit, it takes work. I'm so grateful that you're sharing this in-process version of yourself. So often when we get on recording on camera, especially for those of us that grew up with a lot of shame and self-hatred, we want to present as some ideal. We don't actually let ourselves be where we're at. And I really appreciate the that you're in process, that you're in work, that sort of delayed adolescence that you talked about. It's something I share in my work a lot is we as a community as the lgbt community and i think i think a lot in the gay male world we are in a delayed adolescent phase we missed out on many of the opportunities and the normal developmental skills that happen in adolescence because we were spending so much time hiding or avoiding or disappearing in whatever ways or coping and so in some ways we do have to go through these adolescent phases to try to figure out how to reclaim what we never got in those moments. Yeah. So while I am a full grown man in, in accepting myself as a gay black man, I cannot say that I'm grown. I can't say that. I mean, I have a nephew who's 13 he came out when he was 11, right? I kind of figure like, mm, he doesn't really know who he is just yet. Or maybe he does, right? I have a nephew who's 19 now. He came out when he was 16. And I got to tell you, I actually don't want them to be gay. Hmm. I don't, All right? I love them absolutely, wholeheartedly. Nothing I would not do for them. I do not want them to have a hard life. They already have a fucking hard life by being black. And now you're a gay black man. I don't want that for anybody, to be honest. I don't. And I accept them wholeheartedly. Right? And, you know, there's some jealousy there, too. (laughs) Right. In that they know who they are already. I knew it, but I was not willing to accept it. I was not willing to live my truth. And when you're not willing to live your truth, you are not showing up as leader at that moment. So I wasn't leading myself. There was no self-leadership for me for so many years. So many years. 
that I was wandering around leaderless. My parents were not leading for me. They didn't sit me down and say, listen, so tell us the story. Are you or are you not? Or are you figuring it out? And however it is, it's fine. But I simply want to know so that I can be the best leader for you as you go through this journey. Ain't nobody fucking said that to me. No one ever. Right? I do it for my nephews now because I know what it's like. And I need you to know that you have, you have somebody to talk to. You do not have to do this on your own. Thank you for doing for your nephews what you didn't receive yourself. I mean, in some ways, I hear you talking about not being grown, and yet that's such a grown thing to do, is to be able to live and give to others what you never got. There's a level of of maturity and growth in that. And it's amazing to me, like your career has been focused on leadership development, and yet you're talking about not having leadership in your own life. And isn't it amazing how often we're teaching the thing we most need to learn ourselves? Amen. <laughs> it's and it, it's funny how people like us that are in sort of the coaching profession how often our work t- tends to turn the mirror back on ourselves and we have to look back at ourselves we don't have to but it, it becomes pretty apparent for most of us most of the time <laughs> every time i'm talking to a human being on the phone which is about six times a day as i share with you i'm always being coached always being coached because their lives are mine, Mm -hmm. right? It's the same issues over and over again, but the nuances of our humanity is what makes the coaching experience different every time I speak with someone. Yeah, for sure. So let's hear a little bit more about your work in sort of the leadership realm. What are you doing these days or what's your sort of major career path that you're on right now so i do a lot a great majority of my work is one-on-one coaching um and i speak to anywhere between 24 to 30 leaders a week about what it is that they say that they want for their leadership and for their humanity and for those around them and I do some team coaching as well. And I am of the belief now that this one-on-one coaching work is important. And I will always do it. And there's something that I have to give to the world, which is going to require that I be on more stages, that I be doing more conversations like this. And, and I create the space to have mass impact touching millions of leaders around the globe is my intention for my life and you know i tell people all the time it is my intention to be in the hearts minds and mouths of millions of leaders across the globe that's the work and i can't do that work if i'm only doing one-on-one coaching Right. I also do facilitation. Right. And it's great and I love it, but it's usually 20 to maybe 50 people in a room. I'll do that work too, but I'm gonna, I gotta tell you, I want to be coaching in stadiums. I want to be leading in stadiums. That's the work I want to do. And so I'm slowly (laughs) getting to it. And Lord knows you got to be careful what you ask for. Mm -hmm. And you need to be very thoughtful and very precise on what it is you want. Because the doors are now knocking. Right. And I'm grateful. I'm like, Lord, but I don't know how to handle this. Can you help me? Right. So stepping into doing what it is that I have not necessarily been equipped for. Let me actually, let me rephrase that. 
I'm stepping into a world that is unknown to me and trusting that he above will guide me and put the people in place so that I can do it gracefully and greatly. And even more important for why that work you're doing around the self-love piece is even more important because how do you walk into that level of unknown not trusting yourself? That's right. Not knowing self. That's right. And you, can you really have that kind of surrendered, trusting relationship to God when you can't even connect to yourself, when you reject parts of yourself? Mm -hmm. I was thinking what you were talking about being in stadiums. I love the inspiration and the, and the vision that you have, the bigness of the vision that you have. And I was like, well, you better be ready. LinkedIn, (laughs) LinkedIn is one thing, but stadiums is another thing. (laughs) (laughs) Right. You better be ready. It's interesting, right? I don't have a problem doing that work. It's the, the ability to see myself and record myself and then go back and watch it like, oh, shit. Right. So it's it's different for me. Why is different? I don't know. I don't have a problem being on stage. I don't have a problem training. I'm nervous maybe for the first 10 minutes or every time I do it. But it's this video stuff that bothers me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get that because I it doesn't matter how many episodes of this podcast I've done. As soon as I hit the record button, I forget how to breathe and talk all at the same time (laughs) and and my adrenaline spikes. And so like reading through intros that I write for people, I sometimes stumble over it because I have to work through that first bit of energy because it's still a trigger for me to be on video, to have something recorded, to have it not be able to change it or flow with it. It's now stuck in time. That's right. Yeah, I get get that. So I'm doing the one-on-one coaching and I'm doing facilitation. And something happened last year. George Floyd Mm -hmm. was murdered. And I had time to think. Like, my coaching business did not slow down. At the killing of George Floyd and the economy, I've not had a break. And I'm grateful for that. And the thing that I realized when he died and having many conversations and living on a main thoroughfare where people are marching up and down the streets is that I've been doing this work for 14 years. And the great majority of my clients have been white. And I have a sense about, you know, what, what that is about. And so it made me think about two things. One, how do I dis- demystify black and brown people talking about their shit? The thing that I know about the black and brown community is that we tend to not seek out counseling and therapy and coaches and so forth we just don't i know specifically i've been trained not to talk about my shit what goes on in this house stays in this house nobody else is to know about those things right and so i said to myself and i said to god i need for you to make a way for me to do this work with more people of color. And I'd be damned if it didn't happen almost overnight. I mean, the floodgates opened and I'm grateful for it. Right. And so the other thing that happened was that I know black men for certain do not talk about their shit. We don't. We, we, let me, let me rephrase that. We do, but in a very small clique of friends, those people who are very near and dear to us that are either family or are like family. And so greatness and leadership lies in vulnerability. So how can you be the greatest self-expression 
of yourself if you're not willing to be vulnerable. And so I was talking to my brother Dale and I was telling him this idea and then my brother Diallo, I shared with him too and they were like, man, you should do it. You should do it. And I could not find myself to pull the trigger. So I was facilitating a a, a chat for an emotional intelligence conference. And I happened to meet this, this other black man who we spoke, we spoke after the conference. And I shared with him, you know, what it is that I had envisioned and was going to do. And he said, I'd like to do that with you. And then he said, you know, let's bring two other black men to this call. And so we did. And we began working and hosting conversations with black men about their leadership and vulnerability and their humanity. And so that's the work that I'm also doing. Creating leadership development programming specifically for black and brown men, because their story is dramatically different than the white man and his journey. And, and they also need to know and be with other men who are on a leadership journey that they can actually share similar stories with. And so loving it. What have you learned in that process of sipping into that? I have learned that I have a greater understanding. Like I have my own pain, right? And I know the pain of my brothers and my cousins and close friends. But my God, there's so much pain. There's so much pain and anger and disgust and frustration and worry. And I'm clear that I must do this work for them and for their families. Right. And for the organizations that they choose to work within. And I'm clear that it's wanted now more than ever. And that there's an opening for it. I just have to be willing to consistently walk through the doors that open. I'm super inspired by your ability to see the pain, to see the anger, and to say yes to it, to lean forward rather than to lean away. I think it's so often it can be really, that can be frightening, it can be scary, it can feel overwhelming. But the fact that you see your brothers, your community, and you say yes to it, and you create space for that to, to have a voice, to be seen, to be witnessed, is super powerful. Well, up until now, the Black Collective has not been witnessed yeah. by the white majority. And it's a very important piece to humanity mm -hmm. and the human experience is to be witnessed. It's to know that you are both seen and heard. And more often than not, even in those small gatherings that I mentioned earlier, what tends to happen, what I believe tends to happen, and also speaking from experience, is that there's this bandwagon effect, right? Like, yeah, and yeah, why did they do that? And I'm not about that life, right? I'm about the life of holding you accountable for what it is that you say that you want, holding you accountable for how you allow other people to relate to you and speak to you. And what I know more than ever is creating a space where men can be held hmm. and held long enough so that you can break down in ways that you cannot do other places 
so that you can have those crying moments, so that you can ask for help, so that you can trust that these other black and brown men are here to serve you and your leadership so that you can become greater than the greatness that you already are. And all my work is about that. But in this case, it takes something very specific and special to do this with specific black and brown men. I'm really glad to know that spaces like you're holding exist because I think it's one of the things I've been struggling with as I continue to do more men's work out there in the world. And as I try, as I explore other different men's work communities that are out there and I guess I relate to it from being a gay man. I can't, I don't have the experience of being a black man or a brown man, but there's so many different types of men that don't actually feel welcome in men's group spaces. Mm. I don't see men of color. I don't see queer men in these, in these groups, maybe one here and there, but there are barriers to entry to some of these men's work communities that aren't allowing us to sort of value all beings. And I love that you're creating spaces where those type of men who may not feel welcome in a typical men's group space to find brotherhood, to find connection, to be held, to be vulnerable, to be encouraged. Because it's something I really, it's something I struggle with as we, as I continue exploring how do we create men's work that actually is benefiting all and that really is doing the, the full on work. Um, because it's not enough to just free individual men. We have to also recognize where harm has been done. And we're in a time frame as a culture right now where we're looking at the shadow. We're looking at the harm. Um, George Floyd really gave us a, a, a new, a new lens, a new awakening to that. And the countless others <laughs> around Breonna yeah. Taylor, um, the countless others, Ahmaud Arbery that we were getting another lens into the harm. And until we actually look at that harm and, and address the pain, the anger, the hurt, the the trauma, <laughs> yeah. I don't know how we move forward as a country, Agreed. as a world. So thank you for meeting the moment, for being ready and willing to say yes, and to, even though it's an unknown space and, and potentially sometimes, but to be ready to say yes, because I think it's so needed. Yeah, it's interesting. This yes did not come easy. Mm. And when I say yes, uh, I'm referring to how I even got into coaching in the first place. Right. Um, the door was, I mean, he was knocking quite fearlessly. And I was like, nope, don't want it. Nope, don't want it. Nope, <laughs> don't want it. Don't want it. Don't want it. <laughs> right. <laughs> And then one day I was at a party and he surrounded me <laughs> with like 10 people that I did not want to meet. And I said, okay, I got it. <laughs> I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> I heard you say earlier that the black experience isn't witnessed by the white, by white people enough. And I think, it, in, mm -hmm. go ahead. What were you going to say? Uh, until recently. Yeah, so we have this new open door. We have this new um, ability to see. As a white male coach who's doing men's work, what's your advice in terms of how we continue to engage with witnessing that experience? So what comes to mind is know that you have an, a perspective. And what tends to happen is that when we have a perspective, we have expectations, assumptions, all those things, right? We believe that they're true. We believe that our experience and what it is that we see is true. And know that it is true. But it's only one possible truth. And if you want to witness the black community or even the Asian community or the Latin community or the Indian community. It is important to know that people who are going through those experiences are not saying shit just to say it. 
that there is truth in their perspective. The question is, are you willing to hear a different truth than your own? The other thing that I've said to people is, if you don't have friends, close friends, who are another shade than your own, you got some issues. <laughs> you need to look at yourself and see what's in behind that curtain. Because if you're not willing to look in behind your own curtain, how in the hell else are you going to hear or witness someone else and be able to provide empathy? And so there is more than just one truth. Be willing to listen to that truth. I think that is so true. I think that is something we often stumble and fail at as men is perspective taking or making space for perspectives other than our own. And then you you sort of landed in that place of empathy. That's like way down the line in skill set. <laughs> like that's an advanced skill compared to making space for two different perspectives that are equally true. <laughs> well, you have to have emotional intelligence to have yeah. empathy. Yeah. 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 And I, how do we keep encouraging men all different kind of men to make space for perspective, perspective taking for, to see other perspectives, to see the truth in it, to witness it, to witness the pain. How do we keep encouraging that with men? I think that we have to be willing to be wildly curious about who they are and how they become who they are and hold space for curiosity because what we do is that when we have these kinds of conversations, we, we tend to lead again from our own perspective. We lead from, uh, emotional attachment, which then convolutes or blurs the opportunity to engage in a thoughtful, thought provoking, vulnerable, and just a fucking outstanding conversation. Right. And let go of the emotion. The emotion is relevant. I'm not saying let go of, I'm saying let go of the, the emotional transference of energy. That is what actually gets in the way. Because people don't know how to constructively talk about negative emotion and the impact of the things that have been said and or done. And so we need to do a few things to be able to have those conversations. One, we have to be wildly curious. We have to be emotionally intelligent enough to understand our triggers. And we have to create intention for those conversations. Just takes a moment to do that. Less than 30 seconds. If we do that, we can have these kinds of conversations all day. Yeah. The other thing that occurred to me, and I was talking to a client today who happened to be uh, a senior executive. She's black, Fortune 500. And people are beginning to get tired of this conversation, of this diversity, equity, and inclusion conversation. Yeah. All right. Know that black people have been tired for centuries. And so it's okay to be tired. And the work is not done. So get used to being uncomfortable. Get used to being tired. Until the work is done. And it never will be done. At least not in the lifetime of the people who are listening on this to this call. Yeah, I'm so glad you landed in there. Because I think that's where my question came from. Of like, what's your advice for 
for someone like me, a white male coach who is supporting people out there that is holding these kinds of conversations around how do we continue to meet this moment? Because it it can be fatiguing. It can be hard to constantly be living in that. And I love that you acknowledge like we have to sort of start taking like accountability for our own discomfort, our own feelings, our own emotions, our own triggers and not the, what did you the language you use emotional transference of energy i think is maybe mm. what you said yeah like stop spraying that out like hold that see what's there for you find out what's what's there and you can take a rest when you need to you can take a nap <laughs> that's right but that doesn't mean you stop you can pause for a moment but you re-engage yeah that feels really important to me and i think i'm finally ready to believe because you're now one of many men who has said a similar thing about how important curiosity is. I think something that is so a key tenet of the new masculine is wild curiosity, staying connected to that curiosity, disconnecting from the need to know, to be That's sure right. and actually be curious. That's right. For sure. Yeah. So it's been really wonderful to hear your perspective, not only from your sort of what you're passionate about, what you're the change you're creating, the work you're doing in the world, the big work you're doing, but also to hear the reality of who it is to be you as Don Angelo, to hear the stories that you've been through, the, the challenges you've been through and the work that you're still doing within yourself. So I appreciate you showing us both sides of yourself, the, the human and the professional out there in the world. Because I think that when we just lean fully into our professional and we divorce ourselves from the human, we can't keep doing that. We can't keep creating so many sections of our lives. Yeah. It doesn't work that way. It's not sustainable. But if you were going to give end this conversation with one piece of advice for men, what would that be? Good question. You prepared me for this question ahead of time. And I had a different answer, but since we've gone through this conversation, I think the answer now is become emotionally intelligent. If you're willing to grant yourself access to awareness of yourself, of others, of your relationships, you will become a greater human being than you ever thought you could be. A greater man than you ever thought you could be a greater gay or straight man or by pan whatever the case may be a better father a better brother a better cousin a better employee a better fucking leader in all situations there are four parts to emotional intelligence according to daniel goldman who i've had the profound opportunity to study under there is self-awareness. It is where it begins. Understanding yourself, understanding your triggers, understanding what gets in your way, how you perceive things, how you think. Self-management, being able to reel it all back in and choose to think, speak, and do differently. Social awareness, understanding what's happening with the other individuals that are in my presence. And being able to understand it without them having to tell you. And if you do want them to tell you, be wildly curious about what's happening instead of assuming and or having expectations of what should be happening. And then lastly, understanding how your social awareness, your self-regulation or management and your awareness, your self-awareness impacts relationship because see we what we tend to do is we think about you impacting me or me impacting you and we think it ends there no it doesn't there's a third entity that third entity is the relationship the relationship wants something from you and those people that you are in relationship with the question is what is it and if you can spend time in emotional intelligence and gaining access to great and profound awareness, it will change the course of your life and thereby change the course of how you think and how you lead. 
Well, amen to that. I have, we have talked a lot in this podcast around emotional intelligence, and I've never heard anybody sort of clearly define it. It's no longer an abstract concept anymore. You just like clearly gave us the, the path and the direction. And I'm so grateful for that last offering. You're welcome, buddy. <laughs> well, it has been an absolute pr- pleasure to connect both in our humor, in our vulnerability, in our emotions, in our struggles, and in our greatness. Um, I so appreciate you being willing to bring all sides of yourself. If people wanted to find more about your work, find out where they can find out about an upcoming book that's coming out, yeah. <laughs> um, or just find out more about how to get in contact with you, how do they do that? So I have a new website coming, donangelo.co. Um, it's not up yet. It will be within the next four to six weeks. But also on LinkedIn, Don Angelo Bivens. Um, happy to connect. And if they want to know more, if they want to reach out to you to get my email, feel free to share. Excuse me. Feel free to share. Okay, great. I'll make sure to put all those things in the show notes also so that people can easily access you and find out more about your work, the men's groups that you're hosting, the leadership your work you're doing with black and brown men, your other work that you're doing in the world, the stadiums you're filling in the future, yes. the books, the books, plural. That's right. Get it right. I'm already working Get on the right. second one. <laughs> I can't wait. I cannot wait. Well, if people want to get in contact with me, you can go to my website at travisstock.com. You can email me directly at travisstock 3 at gmail.com, or you can find me on Instagram at travers03. Also, I'm on Patreon. If you're interested in supporting the mission of The New Masculine, helping me find guests, helping me do the work that it is to gather in this community, please consider becoming a contributor. You can go to patreon.com slash thenewmasculine. Again, that's patreon.com slash thenewmasculine. Don Angel, it's been a real pleasure to have you, and I'm so grateful that we got to have our giggles, our tears, and our and our fun today. Thank you for having me. It's been an absolute wonder. 